This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Hey friends, I am very happy to say that I'm back with another episode of the Composer Chronicles. My absence for the past few months started out because of a very fortunate opportunity that brought me to narrate and produce my first audiobook. It was a fantastic project to work on, and I can't wait to share more about it soon. However, shortly after completing that project back in April, I hit a bit of a wall in a personal sense, and I was forced to step back from the podcast. I'm so incredibly happy to be back here with you today to share the stories of even more composers, and today's episode is one of the most exciting by far. Today, I have the honor and pleasure of speaking with Iceberg New Music, a collective of 10 composers based in New York City. The collective of 10 composers hail from different schools of thought and cultivate radically different sounds, from musical theater and indie rock to avant-garde sounds and electronic installations. But their contrasting musical languages belie a shared emphasis on structure and depth of meaning. Their mission? To promote the idea that substance, not surface, is the heart of music creation and perception. In today's episode, you'll hear eight of the ten members talk with me, including Alex Bertzos, Derek Cooper, Victor Baez, Yuchan Chien, Max Graf, Drake Anderson, Harry Staphylakis, and Jack Freer. The other two members of the collective that were unable to join us are Jessica Mays and Stephanie Ann Boyd. Here's how this episode is structured. Each composer will talk about a piece of music they have composed and how their style fits into the collective. A small clip of that piece will then be played. Intermittently, to spread these clips throughout the episode, I'll ask the collective a few questions, such as how Iceberg came to be, the various projects they've worked on together, and what educational initiatives they take. Normally, at this time, I'd tell you what pieces that you'll expect to hear, but this time, I'll just let each of the composers introduce those pieces themselves. However, I will take this time to thank each and every one of the members of Iceberg. It was truly an honor to get to speak to all of you. Your talents, knowledge, and initiative are inspiring. And I thank you for making this episode possible. This is the Composer Chronicles, a storytelling podcast about music through the ages. I'm Stephen Trigar, and this is number 81, Iceberg New Music.
Well, thank you all of you iceberg uh, composers for joining me today. I'm so excited to, to get to talk to all of you. This is going to be a, a very, very interesting and very exciting episode. How are all of you guys doing today? Doing good. Wow. Thanks for having us. Wow. Doing great. Have, thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you guys for being here. It's it's wonderful. Uh, I kind of just want to start off um, with with everybody kind of introducing who they are. Actually, why don't we start with you, Alex, and and start with you and and share your, your, yourself. Sure, my name is Alex Bertsos. I am the founder of Iceberg. I am a composer and I teach at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, Florida. Wonderful. Uh, Derek, we have had you on the podcast before, but uh, just, why don't you say hello and, and what you do outside of Iceberg? All right, cool. Um, yep, yeah, I'm Derek Cooper. Um, and outside of Iceberg, um, I teach at Ramapo College of New Jersey and Hoff Barthelson Music School in Scarsdale, New York. Um, and recently started up my Star Wars music analysis YouTube channel, The Nerdiest Thing in Existence on Planet Earth. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Thank you. And Max. Hi, uh, my name is Max Graff, uh, outside Iceberg. I'm freelance composer. I teach composition and theory at um, Montclair State University in New Jersey and the Kaufman Music Center in New York. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Harry. Hey, I'm Haralobo Stephylakis. Go by Harry. I teach at the City University of New York. I'm the composer in residence of the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra and co-curator of the Winnipeg New Music Festival. I specialize in both uh, kind of classical orchestral music and metal. Wonderful. Interesting. Yu Chun. Hi, my name is Yuchun Tian, and uh, I teach at West Virginia University, and it's my pleasure to be here. Great. Thank you for being here. Uh, Drake? Hi, my name is Drake Anderson. I'm a composer and technologist. I teach electronic music at Vassar College. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Jack? Hey, I'm Jack. I'm uh, currently a grad student at Yale, and I teach... Uh, your training in music technology at Juilliard's pre-college and also do freelance composition stuff as well. Wonderful. Thank you. And finally, Victor. Hi, everybody. My name is Victor Baez. I'm a composer. I'm originally from Mexico. A freelance composer outside of Iceberg. I'm also the artistic director of the freshly minted Iceberg Institute, which is held annually in the summer in the city of Vienna, Austria. And I also have a Mexican restaurant in Vienna, which you're welcome to visit. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for introducing yourselves, um, but let's dive into what Iceberg is. Um, let's, let's start with what is Iceberg and, and how did it get started? Yeah, I think maybe I, I can start off um, since Iceberg sprang from my mind. Um, <laughs> Iceberg is a, a 10 member composer collective of whom we have eight here today. And I started Iceberg in 2016, right after I had graduated with my doctorate from Manhattan School of Music. I was in New York. I was uh, looking for a way to get opportunities outside of school. 
Um, and I started to think about the idea of, of creating a composer collective um, as a way of, you know, getting performances and making connections, but also as a way of presenting concerts that would showcase a huge variety of what was possible in uh, contemporary concert music. And so in recruiting uh, the members of the collective, I really went out of my way to ask composers whose work I admired, but also composers whose work was very different from one another. And so uh, the 10 members of Iceberg uh, really run the gamut from people who are interested in pop music and pop styles to people who write for electronics to people who do, you know, just about everything in between. And we cooperate to present programs uh, that we think are, are more diverse and and uh, very interesting um, and exceptional in the world of contemporary concert music. Wonderful, thank you. Um, just kind of piggybacking off of what you had said about the, the various styles, we're gonna be hearing clips of, um, of music from all of the, the composers here today. Um, and actually all of the Iceberg uh, composers and I want to give all of you who are joining me today to have the chance to kind of talk about what your style is and how you feel that your style contributes to the collective. Um, I actually want to start, um, actually, I'm going to, and I'm going to kind of jumble this around a little bit as um, I'll probably do two or three at a time, then I'll ask another question and then we'll come back just so I can spread the music throughout the entire, uh, the entire episode. Um, but I'm going to start with Max. Um, we have your piece um, from uh, your uh, clarinet quintet. Um, can you share um, a little bit about one about the piece and how you, how you feel that your style kind of fits into the collective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so from, from the very beginning, um, Alex's philosophy about iceberg really uh, spoke to me as a composer in particular, because uh, it's a little bit of a macrocosm of how I think about my own music and music in general. I mean, um, I've always thought, you know, one of the, the, larger mistakes of the 20th century was, was that we've spent way too much time thinking about what distinguishes different approaches from one another rather than what they have in common. Um, and so my music in particular too, as well, that was I mean, to be a little hyperbolic, yeah. Everyone's laughing, um, um, but my music has always been kind of a response to that. And it's, it's very much about taking, uh, and, either layering or juxtaposing things that on the surface seem to be, you know, almost at odds with each other and gradually teasing out the things that they have in common. And that uh, this quintet from 2018 uh, is really kind of a, a manifesto of that philosophy. It's all about these um, apparent clashes that, that eventually all come together to form a, a something cohesive and, and hopefully coherent. Thank you. 
wonderful. Thank you so yeah. much. Um, I'm going to go on to uh, Drake. Um, we have your piece unfolding. Tell us a little bit about that and then how you your style kind of fits into the collective. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think about my style, I think about three things that I, I tend to address. And I think one is improvisation. Another is the use of technology. And a third is uh, reimagining performance practice. So this piece is actually a pretty good example of all three of those in that it's a piece for strings and live electronics, and it can be any size string ensemble. And the performers start by sustaining a note, but then they're wearing headphones that play electronic transformations of what the other performers are playing. And so as those transformations start to kind of shift out of tune with one another, the instructions of the performers are to match the tones that the other performers are playing. And so you end up getting this kind of feedback loop of adaptation, of adjustment, and that starts to build up this rather complex texture. And then in the second half of the piece, the electronics from inside the headphones gradually start to spill out into the concert hall and gradually kind of overtake the ensemble. So you end up getting uh, this, this kind of, a, the electronic transformation that the performers were hearing uh, now is audible to the audience as well. so much um i will continue on and i'll kind of uh, do two at a time here but i'm going to go on to another question that i have and um which is um what are some projects that iceberg has done together as a group probably alex is the most appropriate member to lead off with that okay well in addition to concertizing where we create programs where we've each contributed one piece and we partner with ensembles often in New York, but also in other places throughout uh, North America. Every once in a while, we'll come together outside of our normal concert season to cooperate with an individual on a particular project. And I think the, the first big one that we did was our partnership with Jenny Lin. Um, where uh, Jenny Lin is an amazing pianist, uh, a staple on not just the new music scene, but just the piano scene in general. Uh, she's toured for a number of years with Philip Glass. And so 
um, she, she got in touch with us with an idea about creating a program of etudes. And so um, she asked each of us to compose one etude, and then she chose a piece, another etude from the existing repertoire to pair it with. Um, and then she created a program based on that. And eventually we had the opportunity uh, not just to hear that program played, uh, it, it premiered at Le Poisson Rouge in New York, um, and then toured around the country, but we also recorded that as an album that was released on the Sonoluminous Luminous uh, record label, and um, it's been also published by New Music Shelf. And so over the course of a number of years, that was a really interesting way to take the iceberg philosophy, mix it in with the existing repertoire, and create something that was really fresh in terms of programming, and then realize that not just as a concert, but also as an album and a collection of published works. Um, and I think that was our first introduction to the kinds of things that we could accomplish as a collective outside of just putting on concerts. Um, and since then, we've done a couple uh, projects that are sort of in that similar vein. I would be curious to hear some of the other composers talk about the way that they approached that particular collaboration um, and how it felt to work with Jenny. Um, I guess I'll lead. How about Harry, your, your take on it? Well, it was, of course, delightful to work with Jenny, uh, not just because she really was the one who kind of instigated and uh, was the progenitor of that pro project, uh, but a couple of us already had relationship, relationships with her working relationships. She had appeared uh, at the Winnipeg New Music Festival that I co-curate uh, as part of the Philip Glass Piano Etudes Touring Project. Um, and uh, our former member, Jonathan Russ, uh, knew her personally as well. Uh, for me, it was just a, a delight to be able to, uh, to delve into the solo piano repertoire with a player of that caliber, because even though it was my first instrument, I'd never really written solo piano music. Uh, so this was kind of like a, a watershed moment for me, and I actually ended up writing several etudes for her, uh, a couple of which are being premiered uh, by Will Healy, another former member of Iceberg at Carnegie Hall next month. Uh, and since then, I've co continued my collaboration with Jenny. I wrote her a piano concerto that, although delayed by COVID, uh, will be premiered next January by her. So um, to me, it, it, this kind of integration uh, in my personal artistic practice between the kinds of things I do with Iceberg and what I do outside as a freelance composer, um, it seems kind of holistic. It's it's all part and parcel of a whole. Wonderful. Um, Yu Chen, how about your take on Alex's question? Uh, I think I might be the best person to, to answer this question because I currently live in West Virginia and I didn't really work with Jenny in person, although we did contact through emails and it was really a pleasure working with her. Oh, wonderful. That's great. Anybody else want to partake in this question? Well, I maybe just might add that, at least for me, but I might not be the only Iceberg member who thinks that way. It was, first of all, an absolute surprise to see um, artists of the stature of Jenny approach us and take the initiative to initiate this project. So uh, being... Uh, you know, sharing with my iceberg colleagues the experience of being a super talented composer, albeit maybe not necessarily a superstar status one, 
uh, one is used to trying to chase these high caliber artists and convince them, sort of rope them into your ideas rather than having them approach you pretty much out of the blue, which is what happened with, with Jenny Lin. And to see what this initial sort of cold contact from her blossomed into this sprawling collaboration, which ended up in so many wonderful things, including the actual record that came out, was quite unbelievable, at least to me, pretty literally. But Wonderful. it happened. Wonderful. So another project that we've taken on as a group was a collaboration with the percussionist Lisa Pegger, which we've called uh, AI Rhythm Evolution. And it's a an evening length multimedia performance that we premiered in the fall of 2021 in, in the Orlando area. And it was a unique project for us in that we all came together to write music around a central theme. Um, so there was a collaborative aspect to it and a collaborative uh, objective, you might say, but at the same time, everyone took on their own, everyone had their own take on the theme and the ideas that they wanted to explore and in keeping with all of Iceberg's projects, their own musical language. And so uh, where the collaboration, I would say, really happened was after the pieces were written, we had to bring everything together into a coherent evening length performance with visuals, with live electronics, with all sorts of different instruments. And that was uh, a really exciting collaboration, not only on an artistic level, but just on sort of the, uh, the, the logistical level, you might say, of just putting all this stuff together and getting, uh, making everything into, into one coherent uh, theatrical kind of dramatic whole. Um, and I, maybe um, other folks can speak on the, the particular aspects of it. Derek was a big part of um, putting it together initially as well. Yeah, um, I mean, I loved the Lisa project for so many reasons. And, you know, when we do these projects with individual performers, um, I think we all realize that we're not just working with a performer, but we're working with a personality uh, in a way that you don't necessarily get the same way with an ensemble. Um, and so the, the Lisa project, just like the Jenny collaboration, was just really energizing um, because we, we really got to feel Lisa's energy. Um, She's just so energetic and, and so positive about everything throughout. Um, and I think the other thing that really showed through for us when we did the Lisa project was the fact that each of us kind of bring our own elements um, into the project, even outside of our music, but our other talents. So um, Drake's being modest, but but honestly, we, we couldn't have put that collaboration together without Drake's um, technical abilities. Um, you know, and with every collaboration and project we do, I think there's somebody that steps up with skills that really make that possible. And that's actually one of the awesome things about Iceberg is that we're kind of a, a complete task spot as a village instead of individuals. Um, but yeah, working with Lisa, working with Jenny, I mean, they're just incredible performers, but also incredible human beings. And they, they inspire and bring a certain energy to you as a composer that I just love. Yeah, and I want to say the Lisa Project kind of sounds like a show on Sci-Fi Network, right? <laughs> um, 
But working with amazing performers like Jenny Lynn and Lisa Pegger, um, they push you. Uh, for example, we would talk to Lisa and she would say, I think I should appear as a hologram for part of this show. And we would say, we don't know how to do that. Is that a thing? Um, maybe we can talk about it. So she pushed us because she had such big ideas as a performer. She pushed us to do things that we probably wouldn't have thought to do otherwise. Um, and I also want to give a huge, I know Derek mentioned it, but we can't really give a huge enough shout out to Drake for that project um, because he really designed the entire infrastructure for the project. And I know I, for example, wrote my piece about chess and I wanted there to be elements of the piece that were controlled by the win probability in a chess match. Um, and I didn't really know how to, how to do that. Um, and Drake was like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, we'll just figure that out. And he made it happen. So amazing project. And the recording is up online. If you search for Lisa Pegger um, Iceberg, uh, you can find the recording of that show on YouTube. Great. And I'll make sure to have that uh, that link in the show notes of this episode as well to make it easier to find it. Um, anybody else want to talk about um, any projects that uh, Iceberg has done together? Well, I, I kind of wanted to piggyback on what we were already saying about the projects with uh, Jenny Lynn and with Lisa Pegger is um, how these collaborations dovetail and you know victor drew attention to it it is a wonderful feeling to have these kinds of artists come uh, come to us with their, their ideas their proposals they see something in what we're already doing uh, that seems to inspire them that also happened with um amy brandon and the 21st century guitar conference which was our kind of i think correct me if i'm wrong guys but the, our first international project um so by this point, we were a few seasons in as Iceberg already, and uh, Amy Brandon, who's the founder of this conference, this 21st Century Guitar Conference, which specializes in looking at the guitar, particularly the classical guitar, but all kinds of guitar, uh, as a modern instrument and how it intersects with technology, how guitarists have evolved over time through the history of the instrument. Um, and she learned about us. She was part of some other uh, symposium or conference that I, I was a faculty member on and approached us at, to commission us uh, as a group to compose new pieces for the cowan Chicoliti guitar duo. Uh, Steve Cowan and Adam Chicoliti are a wonderful guitar duo based in Canada uh, that do a lot of commissioning, a lot of contemporary music, but both of the conference and the duo normally work with Canadian artists uh, and as the nominal Canadian within Iceberg uh, I was able to kind of forge that connection but it was a nice stepping out for them to come to Iceberg uh, to create this kind of cohesive program once again for guitars and technology in some fashion um, but also for us to step outside of the U.S. out of our, our usual domain uh, to create this kind of international collaboration turned out into this awesome thing with kind of visual projections that was synchronized to the music, uh, live electronics along or, or pre-recorded electronics as per the piece uh, with the guitars. Um, I don't know, somebody else maybe could talk a little bit about it, but it was fun to head over to my homeland for a little bit with the American crew here, or mostly American. Sure. Well, I think just a couple of things that, that make projects possible is as a group is because we can come into an idea with a full um, kind of concert of pieces without having to individually write a concert of pieces. So something like uh, the 21st Century Guitar Conference um, and being able to also work with with a visual, um, what what exactly did you say, you said, Harry, his title? 
3D projection artist, something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things you have to almost just watch the videos to really appreciate uh, the the light show that went on with that. Um, Those aren't things that you normally get to do in an individual piece as a composer because there's just so many people that have to be involved. Um, Whereas, for example, um, the kind of dovetail as well, our our current projects coming up in concerts uh, with Dakota and and poet uh, Yolanda uh, Celia Ruiz, these aren't things that we would normally maybe get to do on a collaborative basis um, as individual composers, but but now we get to kind of bring our collaborations together in that way. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for your input on on that wonderful question. And uh, I, all these projects sound absolutely incredible. I'm going to go back to um, to two more individuals. Um, I'm going to start um, with Jack. Um, we have your piece steep. Um, care to tell us about that piece and how you fit your style into the collective? Yeah, sure. I mean, the second question I don't really know yet because I'm kind of new here. I, I used to I used to film the Iceberg concerts in New York when I was just a little undergrad, and you know, <laughs> all these older guys doing these Iceberg concerts were so big and scary and impressive. And now I'm sitting with all you guys. It's, it's <laughs> very fun. So I'll, I'll see how I kind of fit in. Can you talk about um, what, when you said older. <laughs> well <laughs> wait what do you mean <laughs> well what do you mean <laughs> uh well I guess you guys were grad students I was an undergrad you know even like the two or three years difference at that point feels very large when you're you know just an undergrad um yeah so I, I my music is often kind of influenced by um uh tonality and harmony and counterpoint and things like that um uh, and this piece, uh, it's interesting because it started off as a solo cello work. It's this very kind of quiet, sparse piece where the kind of um, tonal implications of it are very um, loosely implied, at least when you're listening to the solo cello version, because all these phrases are very slow and far apart. So maybe me as the person who wrote the piece, I, I hear certain connections in the music. I don't expect those things are going to necessarily be communicated. So really that solo cello piece, it was kind of just a little piece for me, but I had the idea of expanding it into a string orchestra work with percussion as well to, um, you know, the function of the rest of the string orchestra and the percussion is to kind of give some sort of harmonic context to this solo cello line. The solo cello piece is basically untouched still in the cello part, the string orchestra piece, but everything else is just kind of providing the harmonic and contrapuntal context that I kind of already was thinking about when I wrote the solo cello piece. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought it would just be kind of a cool exercise. And it kind of creates an interesting power dynamic as well, because, um, you know, how is the rest of the ensemble impacting that cello piece? Are they causing this cello piece to proceed or is it vice versa? Is that solo cello line creating some kind of ripple effect throughout the rest of the ensemble. Um, that was kind of the thought process. But but the way that it comes across is just like this very floaty, slow moving string orchestra piece. So it's very kind of subtle and more, I don't want to use like the word atmospheric, but there's not much that happens in it. And any change that happens is very, very kind of gradual. Thank you. 
What would a world without music be like? I certainly don't want to know. This podcast would not exist. Luckily, we don't have to find out what that world is like. I do a lot of listening in a day between all of my favorite music and podcasts, and it's not just for entertainment. I'm constantly doing research for this podcast and switching back and forth between apps to listen to a podcast episode and then a piece of music can get tiresome if I'm trying to quickly switch back and forth. From an episode of Hey Riddle Riddle to Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet Suite and then to Lady Gaga's latest album, I can listen to them all on Amazon Music whenever and wherever I want. I start listening when I get into my car and then when I get home, I switch over to my Alexa while I cook dinner for me and my fiance. Listeners of this podcast can join me in listening to all of the best music and greatest podcasts on Amazon Music Unlimited right now when you sign up today at getamazonmusic.com slash the Composer Chronicles and get your first 30 days for free. You can get unlimited access to any song and do all of that listening without any ads. So again, go to getamazonmusic.com slash The Composer Chronicles and start listening on Amazon Music Unlimited today. Before I let you get back into the episode... I want to thank these incredible composers for sharing their stories, and I can't wait for you to get to hear more of them. Next up, we have Yu Chanqian discussing her piece, Decomposition. So uh, I would like to talk about the piece that um, that was put on the website, Iceberg website, which is my orchestra piece, Decomposition. So for that piece, uh, although the title usually, like people would uh, say the title has a negative meaning because of decomposition, uh, I would like to say that we usually think that composition is to put things together. But at the same time, I would say uh, how to deconstruct a like a thing is also an intriguing idea. And that is something I wanted to um, de depict in that piece. So in that piece, in the very beginning, I have a um, idea very um, clearly stated. And then I tried to use the idea of decomposition from different aspects. For example, in the very beginning, it is based on the uh, longer value of notes, like lines, and then it becomes uh, dots, uh, short notes. And also in the beginning, we have instrumental sounds, and then you'll be deconstructed into percussive sounds. So there's a section focused on um, percussive sounds. And also in the end, oh, most of the um, 
the orchestra members, they would not play their instruments, but they would whisper uh, or some body languages that uh, like uh, clapping and rubbing their hands to get the ear sounds and so forth and so forth. So I wanted to kind of create a connection between instrumental sounds and also our natural body sounds. And also what would be quite unique for an orchestra member to do, especially a concert master uh, would be to sing. So at the end, the concert master, uh, she needed to sing the like central melodic line. Yeah. About my music, I am currently interested in like um, sounds, but not like uh, Drake. He likes to use technology and electronic musics. I <laughs> I am not that good in that regard, but I like to observe uh, how instrumentalists they play their instruments and how a sound is produced and how uh, it will resonate and so forth. Yeah, so. And also I'm interested in architecture. So numbers are very important in my music. I usually calculated like proportions. So there's always like a mathematical process in, in the early stage of my, my composition. Yeah, so how I contribute to um, the collective, I would say it's kind of hard to say, but I would like to invite you to, to participate in at least one of our concerts so you would know what we mean. It, you will not really like, um, fully understand without really experience our concerts, not just a concert, but many our future concerts and also the uh, video and audio recordings that you could find on YouTube and other platforms. Wonderful, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I'm going to ask uh, another question, uh, and specifically about the educational initiatives that Iceberg takes. Um, what are some educational initiatives that uh, Iceberg has undertaken? Does anybody feel best to start off that question? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, because um, this is something I think that even from our early on years, um, we've really wanted to have an importance um, in doing. And so um, one of the most one of the earliest things we did was as we started doing our collaborations um, with Memphis and Crosstown Arts uh, in Memphis, uh, we go out to schools in the area um, presenting our music, talking about what it means to be a composer um, in the 21st century, um, you know, and the idea that composers even still exist, and kind of giving some students and, and, and children um, experiences with, with just generally some of those ideas. Um, we, we also um, have every single year we have the Iceberg Young Composers Awards, um, where we, we offer scholarships um, to students 
who are just embarking on their on their um, music creation careers. Um, I'll stop there as well. But but I think for us, outreach has become one of the most important things we do, um, even outside of our own music, for sure. Yeah, I want to add on to what Derek said, um, just to say that in addition to providing general educational outreach, it's also important to us and it has become increasingly important over the years that we provide support for young composers from underrepresented backgrounds. And so our Young Composer Awards are specifically designated uh, for composers who identify as being from underrepresented backgrounds. And we also have an ongoing um, initiative that we started in summer 2020 uh, called Adviceberg, where we offer free uh, career counseling and sort of career advice uh, meetings for uh, young composers. And again, that is prioritized for composers who self-identify as being from under underrepresented backgrounds. Um, and so we think that it's part of our responsibility as an established organization at this point uh, to provide support for younger composers or emerging composers who are coming up behind us, um, especially those who may be facing some kind of disadvantage. Um, and so that, that's an important component of the educational outreach as well. Yeah, just, just to jump off of that, pretty early on as we were you know, starting to put some of these initiatives into practice, we had a conversation about, uh, about how one of the biggest obstacles to you know um, real equitable representation in our field is is people not being able to get in on the ground floor. So a lot of these initiatives that we've been talking about, like the scholarship and Adviceberg, have have really been focused on um, early career people who otherwise might not have an avenue into into the um, the industry. Well, I just wanted to say that if there are any young composers listening who feel like they would benefit from either of those programs, uh, please go to our website and there's information there and you can send us a message or apply for those uh, scholarships um, during the application window, which is usually in the summer into the fall. And if I can add, I, I don't know if this is quite the right spot for it, but to me, it's sure. related that from of our course. From our first season, I mean, it would have been easy for us to put on our concerts. That's just the music of Iceberg composers. But from our very first season, we've had an ongoing uh, call for scores, an annual call for scores, so that we'd have two winners for every year. And one of those winners would have their pieces performed on one of the two programs that we present in New York City with our partner ensemble of that year, which to us seemed like a logical way to expand outside of the collective itself and to bring other people into the fold uh, for us to commune with our fellow composers or fellow musicians, maybe to highlight some works that otherwise wouldn't have been played in New York with that particular ensemble, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I see it as part and parcel in its own way that it's also giving an opportunity to others, but also for us to, you know, to, to keep it from being entirely incestuous, internal kind of a, a musical, musical creating. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go back um, to introducing some more pieces. Um, Victor, um, I would love to be able to pronounce um, the first word of your piece. Can you actually uh, pronounce the title of your work? I'll be glad to. So, of course, it's Spanish, and the Spanish title of the piece is Cuatlicue Barria la Escalera del Templo, which translates to Cuatlicue, which was 
who was an Aztec, at least an Aztec goddess, was sweeping the temple steps. Wonderful. Thank you. Can you um, tell us about that piece and how you feel your style fits into the collective? Well, the, um, the main aspect of this piece goes back to a very concrete musical gesture that is available to traditional string instruments, which is called subharmonics. And so for anybody in the audience who is not a hardcore musical experimental professional, uh, it's very easy to explain in that when you tune a string instrument, usually what you determine, well, not usually, you, what you actually determine is what is the lowest note that that string can produce. And once that note is set, usually there is no way to make that string play any notes that is lower than that. And so with this technique, which is called subharmonics, there is a way to make a string in one of these instruments to produce notes that go lower than what should normally be the lowest available note on that string. And as you can imagine, that opens up uh, an entire new world of sound possibilities and therefore compositional possibilities, which was a thing that I've been extremely attracted to for many years now. And subharmonics, incidentally, was actually the main reason why I stopped living in Vienna, which I was doing about nine years ago, and moved to New York City to pursue my doctoral degree there and mainly researching subharmonics. And this piece is a result of that research and it deals mainly with that As to the second part of the question, which is how does this style fit with Iceberg, I would say that, well, I hope I'm not the only one in general as a composer who is constantly assessing why we do this, which is not uh, self-evident. It's not a question with a self-evident answer. And I'm constantly thinking about these kinds of questions. And recently, I've come to some conclusion that my style fits into Iceberg probably in a very similar way in which everybody else's styles fit into the collective, which is that we are all kind of pursuing our own personal, creative, artistic concerns in a way that to me feels very authentic and genuine. So to me, that comes in the form of a sort of realization that for us people, and not to philosophize too much, but you, know, you asked the question. So for us people, it seems to me that it's impossible not to think in general and to conceive of the world 
outside of narratives. We tend to, you know, just look at the world around us and put, try to fit everything into a sort of narrative. And I realized that when one composes, it is best, and again, this is my personal opinion, it is best for you as a composer, as well as for your audience, to be very aware of that fact and to realize the importance of narrative. And so to me, it has become supremely important to analyze how we may express these narrative urges in a way that is truly contemporary, which again, me, to me means authentic to yourself and to your own personal concerns, which are expressed in the current times and are therefore truly contemporary. Wonderful, thank you. Um, Harry, we have your piece source code. Um, care to talk about that and your style in, into the Iceberg Collective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my formative musical background is kind of in parallel uh, both in training and practice as a classical musician and as a metal musician. So what I've been doing for you know the last decade really of my artistic practice is increasingly integrating those two sides of my musical persona. Uh, this piece, Source Code, as the title implies, is uh, kind of looks pat uh, into the background code, the source code of um, what makes my music tick, whether it's my purely orchestral or chamber music or my more kind of hard-edged metal band-oriented stuff um, and kind of integrates those explicitly. So this was commissioned by the Hard Rubber Orchestra, which is a pretty eccentric, like avant-garde jazz big band in Vancouver. Um, they uh, asked me to write a piece for big band. I don't know. I'm not particularly on the jazz side of things, but I took this as an opportunity to uh, use their instrumentation, which that of a big band kind of overlaps with both the orchestral side of things with the big kind of brassy sound. They also have a, of course, piano and, and a violin in their big band, uh, but also the rhythm section instruments, which are shared in principle with a metal band. So drum set, electric guitar, electric bass. Um, and so I, I wrote this piece that uh, very much marries my love of big, epic, sweeping, kind of romantic, symphonic sound, uh, or cinematic for that matter, uh, and my uh, obsession with hyper-real um, uh, accuracy, I guess, uh, or rhythmic accuracy, if you will, of the recorded metal sound. What does it sound like for a metal band to be recorded to click track, player by player in a uh, recording studio, there's a particularly unrealistic, which I call hyper-real kind of sound to it, um, which enables that massive wall of sound that metal is known for to be projected um, in a controlled environment and with a high level of precision uh, and articulation. Um, so yeah, the, the, this is the piece that I wrote. I ended, we ended up recording a studio version of it, which is what you have at your disposal. And we also did a video of it. This was done during COVID, uh, the first year of COVID. Um, so we didn't get to premiere the video, which was done by the drummer, Elliot Doyle, who was hired specifically because he's a Meshuggah drumming specialist, like prog metal drumming. Um, uh, but it's being premiered tonight, the video at uh, by the Hard Rubber Orchestra and their concert in Vancouver. I guess the podcast won't be heard. Uh, that was a few a few days ago, at least, or months. Uh, 
but uh, probably a few that, weeks. Yeah, a few <laughs> weeks. Okay, right. Um, anyway, I, and uh, that's me playing. Uh, I'm playing guitar on this track as well, so I got to like get back into my main, my principal instrument, and 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 play metal within an otherwise concert music kind of context. what I how I fit into iceberg I mean we're a Venn diagram for sure and it actually be interesting to create our stylistic Venn diagram because obviously <laughs> there's overlap in what we do and what we contribute to the whole uh, but I guess my uh, in simple terms uh, I bring kind of bombast and epicness uh, whenever possible and uh, a sort of unrelenting propulsiveness in my music that um, provide some contrast with uh, some of our other styles. Wonderful. Thank you. That, <laughs> great, uh, great words to use there. I know that uh, a lot of, a lot of your uh, colleagues got a good chuckle out of that one. Uh, but um, I'm going to kind of bridge um, the, this last, uh, this last section here um, with a question uh, of what do you think are some advantages and challenges that come to forming um, and maintaining um, a composer collective? Um, yeah, why don't we, we go with that? Uh, anybody care to, to jump in at the top here? Uh, the disadvantages are that Alex does a whole lot of administrative work. <laughs> that, that is a disadvantage. Yeah, it is a lot of work. Um, I don't say that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I would say the advantages of a composer collective, the reason why a composer or a group of composers might say, yeah, this is a thing that we want to do is because you can make things happen as a group that you can't make happen by yourself. That is the single biggest advantage. And it's the reason that the initial idea for iceberg came to me. I thought, how can I, I make something happen? It's really tough on your own, but if you have 10 people working together, you can make things happen. And I would think that all of the projects we've described here tonight uh, or today or whenever it is right now when you're listening, <laughs> dear listener, um, all of the projects that we've talked about, those are all things that we couldn't have done on our own. They were only possible because we were functioning as a group. And there are some additional things that I hope we'll have a little bit of time to talk about, like our Iceberg Institute in Vienna um, which is coming up uh, first in-person edition this summer that really are unthinkable if it's not a group working together. Um, and so that's the big advantage. The challenge is that you it takes a lot of work and specifically it takes a lot of work in areas that often musicians and composers are not trained for. You need to have a certain amount of organizational skill and business acumen you need to know how to write a contract, how to rent a venue and deal with that. You need to know how to negotiate with performers. You need to know how to handle taxes, how to incorporate as a nonprofit. And those are things that, uh, you know, I don't know about different schools, but uh, 
working at Manhattan School of Music, I never took a class and here's how you do your taxes for a nonprofit. Those are things that I kind of had to pick up on the fly. Um, and I would say that the learning curve is initially quite steep. So if it's something that you're going to do to create an organization like this, you should be prepared to spend a lot of time on it, figuring things out up front. And then it gets a little bit easier as you go, as you get more used to here's how you fundraise and here's how you do all these different things. Um, and probably the biggest challenge that confronts us on a day-to-day -day or year-to-year -year basis now is fundraising. How do you make sure that you have uh, what you need to accomplish these big goals and realize these big dreams? And so that's um, probably the biggest challenge that, that we face and probably the biggest challenge that most arts organizations face overall. Wonderful. I kind of want to hear what um, some others feel uh, th that their advantages and kind of challenges are be as being part of the collective. Um, I, since we haven't heard from you in a while, uh, Drake, how do you feel like the uh, Composer Collective kind of um, provides advantages or challenges to your career? Yeah, there's certainly a practical aspect for all of us in that taking on a recording project is really daunting by yourself. But kind of pooling resources with a group of people makes it a lot easier on a practical level and then also makes it more appealing to someone like Jenny Lynn. Um, I don't know that Jenny Lynn would record an album of just my etudes. In fact, I would be surprised if she did that. But when you've got 10 different composers who all represent uh, these really uh, diverse stylistic voices, um, all of a sudden that starts to sound like not only a really cool project, but also really practical because everyone's writing one etude rather than one person writing 10 etudes. So you kind of, it's a way to flip the math a little bit in a way that, um, that ends up benefiting everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, Max, how do you feel that um, the collective kind of provides uh, challenges or advantages to your career? In, in my particular case, it's, it's, um, pretty much along the same lines of what Alex and Drake have been talking about. I'm, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, that self-promotion is one of my strengths. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it's always nice to have the, the support network there and, and, um, the ability to, to make connections with performers and ensembles as a group rather than as an individual. It's, it's, uh, you know, resulted in a lot of uh, offshoot projects for me that 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 would probably not have happened otherwise. Um, yeah, I, I I I don't really think I have a whole lot to add to to what Alex and Drake were saying. It it, it um, you know definitely has called for um, you know on the fly learning of skills that that probably wouldn't have um, come up otherwise. But but you know, all to the good. Great. Uh, Jack, as somebody who is newer to the group, how do you feel that that uh, the collective has already kind of provided advantages or challenges all, starting right off? Yeah. Uh, you know, it was interesting timing because I, you know, COVID started when I was in the middle of my first, I took a gap year after my undergrad, kind of just going gung-ho for the the freelance thing, trying to get away from musical institutions and things like that. And then COVID hit and it made me realize in a very necessary way just how kind of fragile this career 
is and how tricky it can be. And just when you think things might be going well, that they can all be taken away, et cetera. And, and uh, kind of right in the middle of the pandemic is when I was asked to join this collective, um, which was just the perfect timing because I was just kind of, you know, uh, needed something to do needed people to be around, needed something to do sounds terrible, but you know what I mean? It's like uh, having any opportunity just like appear like that is really incredible. And I'm so thankful to Alex and everyone else for thinking of me to kind of join this collective. Um, and so far it's given me the opportunity to write a piece that I wouldn't have written for a bunch of performers that I never would have gotten come to work with before in the Dakota ensemble, which is amazing. And um, uh, yeah, and just, you know, the potential of helping out with this crosstown uh, residency and this um, institute in Vienna, things like that are just incredibly exciting. So I just have a lot to look forward to, I suppose, and a lot to be thankful for. Yeah, and I think, uh, first of all, Jack is not a stranger to Iceberg. Um, he he had been around uh, our, you know, he filmed, I think, every season almost. Yeah, filmed every season up to this point. And so we were really happy to have him as part of the group. But Jack, one thing, one point that you make really well, I think, um, is that it's not just a business thing. It's not just a professional thing, at least not anymore. Um, when we started in 2016, uh, it was 10 people and not everyone knew everyone else. Um, like I was the only one who knew everyone because I had done all the asking. Um, but over the six years since then, um, we've become very close, I would say, um, not just professionally, but also, you know, close friendships. And this has been cemented by doing a lot of traveling together. Like, for example, we go every year during non-COVID times uh, to Memphis, Tennessee for a, a residency there um, with an organization called Crosstown Arts in Memphis. And the first couple of years, we, we didn't have the money uh, to fly, so we drove. And so, you know, nothing bonds you to your fellow composers like a 20-hour car trip driving from New York to Memphis. Punctuated uh, with a motel stay in some rural backwater halfway. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so, you know, once you've done that kind of stuff and you've worked together closely for six years and you've gone through these experiences, it isn't just a professional organization anymore. It is um, a group of friends with a shared interest and a shared passion, uh, helping one another to achieve their goals. And I think that that's an important element of a collective as well, albeit one that probably takes a little bit longer to materialize because the benefits are more, are less defined. Um, well, I don't know specifically to my career, but I think one of the biggest challenges for us as a 10 member group is just the logistics and coordination of that. Um, so for example, actually we're, we're missing um, two people today um, that we should at least mention, uh, Jessica Mays and Stephanie Ann Boyd. Um, and so it just goes to show you that it's very hard for 10 professionals uh, with individual schedules to get together. Um, and that can sometimes also be a challenge for making decisions, um, things like that uh, for us for sure. But um, you know, in terms of advantages, I think two things come to mind for me. And the first one is when we decide who we're going to be collaborating with in the, the coming seasons and things like that, um, that's obviously a team effort and a team decision. Um, we don't individually all get what we want each year. Um, and I actually think that's a very good thing. 
Um, I've worked with a lot of ensembles that I, as a, a composer, would not have normally approached or thought of working with. Um, Bent Knee, um, that, that collaboration that we did last year is probably the, the most obvious example to me. Um, but, but that kind of helps, I think, to push some of us too, because um, we go outside of our quote unquote element um, in that sense. Um, the other thing though, for me is that this group has sort of allowed me to accept who I am as a composer a lot more. Um, when I came into this group, well, when we all came into this group, um, I really had this sense of like, well, I'm a classical composer, so therefore this is what I'm allowed to do and this is what I'm not allowed to do. Um, and of course that's entirely my mistake, but it's also just sort of built into you unconsciously over the years. And then you come into a group like this and you see, you know, Drake and, and Max on a concert with Harry and you see just how different um, the music can be. And at the same time, all of their music is just as awesome in, in its own way. Like, like it, and so I realized, you know, oh, well, I can do exactly what I want to do. Um, and there's this acceptance, um, you know, like, like Alex mentioned, we're friends. Um, there's this support that we have as a group now um, as well that I've never experienced with other composers, even who are friends. Um, this just feels like this safe, happy place with everyone here. I, I don't actually remember us not all being close friends. It feels like when was our first year in Memphis? We were already all hanging out. It felt like family from early on, no? Think, you and I Will were Memphis the only people was... I really even knew before. Huh. Um, yeah. yeah 20, 2017 was the first year in Memphis. So we did get mm -hmm. it together quickly. Yeah. yeah. Alex, is that when you and I were both there as well? Was that 2017? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Jack really has been there since the beginning. Jack was there for an unrelated... <laughs> For an unrelated thing, he was in Memphis at the same time. It's like the M. Night Shyamalan reveal right here. Jack's been with us the whole time. <laughs> and St Stephen, I wanted to add something to what everybody else was saying, because you know, there, I, I think there are other composers who would be interested in forming collectives and being part of collectives and maybe aren't sure what that entails. So maybe to draw attention to some of the challenges, I mean, speaking obviously personally here, one of the main reasons why I left the world of metal, which involved being part of a band, a five-piece band where we were kind of democratic, even though I was the band leader, um, is that as a composer, as an individual composer, I was beholden to no one. I mean, literally, I'm self-employed. I work on my own. I make the musical decisions. I give finished products to performers that they perform it. Uh, this is the kind of job that is quite lonely and certainly appeals to somebody with uh, one might level the, the criticism, some kind of megalomania or <laughs> narcissism complex. Um, so being part of a collective is kind of antithetical to that because we are... Uh, almost literally a union. I mean, we're, when we're negotiating with musicians, with uh, uh, partnerships, with venues, it's a collective bargaining agreement in effect that we're each beholden to. I normally in my, in my freelance practice, in my individual practice, I make all my decisions. I take all the risks. I do all the work because it benefits or impacts me in some way. But in this case, I have to think about the good of the whole in terms of my own decision-making and how I approach a project, how I meet deadlines, how long the piece is even, or what kind of you know logistical challenges I introduce with my instrumentation or techniques or rehearsal time needs and all of these sorts of things. So um, 
that is a challenge, but it, you know, as others have pointed out, it's also a good thing to kind of check oneself and to, to become part of this kind of team thinking, this band thinking uh, at, at a regular uh, kind of periodic uh, uh, rate uh, and to have something to look forward to annually, as Jack kind of said, like give you something to do every year and know that you have at least one or two or three projects that we're going to be doing specifically for this group. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go to the last two pieces and, and composers that we have here. And certainly not the least, um, uh, Alex and Derek, thank you in incredibly, uh, incredibly much like for, for setting up this in this entire uh, conversation. Um, Alex, I'm going to, to start with you. Um, you have a piece, Power Trio. Uh, for alto sax piano and percussion. Um, talk about that piece and, and your style within the collective. Sure. It's interesting for me to talk about my musical style because I don't really think about myself as having a musical style. I have come over the years to think about myself as more of a storyteller than um, anything else. I initially went to college as a creative writing major. That was my first creative interest. And then I, I came to composition a little bit later. And so frequently when I sit down to work, I start with some sort of extra musical idea. And that might be a poem, it might be a drama of some kind, or it might be something that is not inherently dramatic, but which I can draw on to think about the form of the piece. Um, and so I, I try my best to translate that thing, whatever it is, into music, not in terms of the sounds themselves, but in terms of manifesting that idea in the form of the piece, in the way that time passes, in the way that time is used in the piece. And then I search for the right sort of musical language to communicate what I want to communicate uh, about that thing. And this is not to say that I don't have musical interests, I do. Um, one of my big musical interests is stylistic synthesis. So I, I'm very, very interested in bringing in sounds and idioms from rock, metal, hip hop, and jazz into concert music and sort of synthesizing that with um, the sorts of sounds that you might expect from contemporary concert music. And this piece, Power Trio, is exemplary of all these different ideas. The initial idea behind the piece came from a clap light ad from the 1990s. Um, you know, the clap on, clap off. Yeah, exactly. So I watched this commercial on YouTube about 100 times, and then I actually modeled the composition on the commercial. And so there's this rhythmic motif that happens throughout the piece where you have these sudden offbeat attacks that clap the sound on and off. And over time, uh, usually it's a, a saxophone multiphonic that is being clapped on and off. And then over time that develops into this sort of free jazz freak out um, over the course of the piece. Uh, and this was a really fun piece for me to write and it embodies sort of the way that I think about creating a composition, um, which is to start with the form, draw that form from somewhere else and sort of translate it into time and then find a musical language that feels right uh, to, to build that piece on.
you. And Derek, uh, who has been um, the first uh, composer in this collective to have had a, their own their own episode, uh, and I didn't mean to put you last, but I, I knew that you have had your your full episode. But I you did send me um, your piece Rise, and I would like to um, to hear what that piece is about and and what uh, how you feel your your style fits into the collective as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a good connection, I think, to this collective because um, it, it embodies a lot of what I, I said earlier. Um, you know, coming into this group, I, I always before in like the, the distant, distant past wanted to be a, a film composer. Uh, it's like originally got me into composition. Uh, and then I realized that I don't like working with most directors and producers. And that's just not what I enjoy um, as much as I enjoy the art form. Um, so I went more into classical. But that sort of started to defining how I sounded as a composer. And then again, listening to and, and being able to experience in a concert setting music like that of Harry's um, along with my own music and seeing how the commonalities actually play a role. Um, I started getting back into my, my film scoring interests um, as well as metal um, and things that I, I listened to for so often, but was always sort of hesitant to bring into my own music. Um, so Rise and working with, with Bent Knee on this group as well as Shout House um, was just a perfect chance for me to really explore those sounds. Um, and again, like this is not something I would have normally been comfortable to admit, but the initial sound impetus for that piece um, actually comes out of this moment in um, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, which is a video game, an incredible video game, um, and the music is amazing. But there's this moment where you're climbing this tree and I actually just did a video about this and the music climbs, it grows with you. And it's just this incredible experience um, as a gamer. And I was like, all right, well, that's what I want to start this piece with. Um, and the idea of, of movement and rhetorical devices and being able to hear something that you're feeling, of course, is so um, embedded into film music. And so I was throughout this piece thinking about the idea of rhetoric and movement and direction. Um, and this also ties in with the words in this piece, which are highly influenced by a lot of human right activists um, and speakers and writers over the years. Um, so the idea is of this idea of rising up to um, stand up for your rights um, and this idea, and it plays a lot with um, women's rights, civil rights, Black Lives Matters, really everything that we see going on um, in the world right now and in our society. Um, and I, it's, it's funny when I, when I think about the words, I actually had to go back at the very end of this and change a couple of things. Cause I had things like fight for your rights. Um, and I was putting the ending on this and, and the final revisions right around um, the beginning of January, 2021. Um, and so I actually went back and changed some of this to avoid the idea of fighting for your rights um, and, and how that was being played into uh, the events of January 6th. Um, but it, the piece is still about standing up for your rights, um, you know, rising up and, and being heard and, and, and being seen um, as well. And the entire piece from the very first note continually ascends or should have the illusion of ascending.
very much for being here with me today and providing your your insight and and what it's like to be part of this collective and what the collective is. Does anybody have any last minute thoughts about what how they, what they want to say about the collective before before I let you all go? Yeah, I think we should do a couple plugs. Um, yes, please. Uh, I'm actually going to toss it over to Victor to talk about the uh, Iceberg Institute, which is happening in person for the first time this summer in Vienna. Yes, this is Victor. I'll be glad to talk a little bit about that. We are all very, I hope we are all very excited about the coming Iceberg Institute. So this is an idea that I originally had almost or maybe literally three years ago. And we were supposed to have the first in-person version of it in the summer of 2020. And then well, we all know what happened. But <laughs> last year we did an online version of the course, which was incredibly successful. And this year we are prepared to finally do our first in-person version of it as originally intended, which is a two week course, summer course happening in the city of Vienna, where 16 active participants will have the opportunity to partake in a series of personal in-person lessons with iceberg faculties and with distinguished guest faculty, as well as having a piece of theirs performed by the incredible trio Immersio, which is a Vienna-based trio composed of outstanding musicians with incredible international careers. And it will all culminate with a concert on the last day of the second week, which will happen at a beautiful venue provided by the Music University of the city of Vienna. So like I said, this will be the first time we do it in person. We are, at least I am, beyond excited to do it. And I don't know what there is to plug about this current edition, because of course it's all closed. It's happening, we have our participants, but I guess we can do a plug for our final concert, which is about four months in off into the distance in late July. So, uh, oh, and also Harry has just kindly reminded me that besides our active participants, we also take an almost arbitrary number of auditors. So people can also come and simply listen to the lessons, which just by itself is already of incredible value, not necessarily because of people being able to listen to what I have to say about it, but because of the other participants that we will have lecturing and teaching the art of composition, both from the standpoint of a composer and also from the standpoint of the performers, which I think is incredibly important as well, as the active participants will get their pieces performed and also, of course, invaluable feedback from the performers themselves. Well, thank you all so very much for being here today. It was an absolute pleasure talking to each and every one of you, and I really appreciate it. And um, as always, any links or anything that has been said um, is going to be listed in the show notes. Um, so anybody listening can go and click on those if you would prefer to click rather than to type it in. Um, but again, thank you all very much for your time. I really appreciate it very much. Thank you, for, Thank having you. Us. for having Thank us. You. Before I let the credits roll, I wanted to plug something Alex had mentioned 
but was unfortunately removed due to my inability to have the episode released in time. Iceberg New Music's most recent concert series, titled The Peace Chronicles, featured works by members of Iceberg and was performed by the Decoda Ensemble, with readings of poetry by poet Dr. Yolanda Sealy Ruiz. Clips from part one of this concert series are now up on Iceberg New Music's YouTube channel, so click on the link in the description to listen to these amazing pieces. This episode of The Composer Chronicles was edited by me, Stephen Chigar, with theme music written by Daryl Banner. You can find Iceberg New Music on social media while listening to their music and learning more about the collective via links found in the show notes. Music used in this episode was graciously supplied by the members of Iceberg. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you can leave a rating and a review. Join our community of music lovers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cron Podcast. Here you can engage with our incredible community of music professionals and enthusiasts while staying up to date on news pertaining to our past guests. For more information about this podcast and to learn more about the composers, music professionals, and other featured guests on the show, visit alexandrianmedia.org slash The Composer Chronicles. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.